Okay, so I, as Hannah said, I'm Eden Flora. I am a member here at Christ Pres. If you are not a member, we are so glad you're here. Please come, keep coming back. This is a great place to bring people to. Um, we will study Habakkuk this week and next week, but then we will move on to one more book, Zephaniah. So there is still time to bring a new friend. You can be like, yeah, we're still covering the book of Zephaniah. So um, there is still opportunity to keep bringing friends. Um, so, as I said last week, I told y'all about a wonderful resource called Habakkuk the Expectant Prophet by John Currid. That, again, is heavily informing all of my study today, so um, I just want to give him credit. It's an excellent book. So, last week, we met the prophet Habakkuk, and that was such a good place to be. Uh, it's a beautiful book that is incredibly... Um, applicable to our lives. And we saw Habakkuk crying out to the Lord because God's covenant people were spreading violence, to use his words. So they were not living as godly people. Habakkuk was asking God, are you working? Do you see? And we saw God respond saying, yes, I'm working. Yes, I see. So God was saying, I'm going to work in a way that you won't believe. I'll be using the Babylonians God's people's enemies to bring justice. So today we are going to be looking at what Habakkuk comes back to to God after God has said that. So I have a child who will go unnamed who regularly will look at me. This especially happens when in the car and he's sitting behind me so I can't even see his face. Um, he will look at me and he say, he'll say, Mom, I have something to tell you. And then he'll pause. And every single time my heart just braces. I'm like, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? And he does this on a regular basis, so you would think I would get used to it, but every single time I'm taken aback when he says, Mom, I have something to tell you. And he will, you know, follow that statement. Thus far, it's always been something like, I played with Campbell in the playground today. Like something so anticlimactic that it does not deserve like that pause and that phrase of I have something to tell you. But he's just picked that phrase up somewhere along the way, but it stops my heart every time. I'm taken aback every time he uses that phrase. So that is where we find Habakkuk. He is taken aback. This is not what he thought was going to happen. It's not what he thought God was going to say. Um, so Habakkuk, you know, that's how he feels, and he tells God so. Um, so that is where we're headed. So for our outline, we're going to follow a very basic outline, just like last week, uh, where we follow the scripture. So first, we'll be studying Habakkuk's second complaint, and then we'll be studying God's response to that second complaint. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk. Um, remember, it is right before the New Testament starts. There's a few small books between Habakkuk and the New Testament, but that's where you can find it. Um, so we are going to arrive and start um, in chapter 1, verse 12, with Habakkuk balking. He is saying, how could a holy God work through such ruthless people? God, will you really accomplish your purposes through circumstances and situations of evilness? So Habakkuk is saying that um, things just don't line up with who I know you to be, God. So let's read the end of Habakkuk chapter 1, and we will start with verse 12. I'm going to read it for us. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Okay, so Habakkuk's second complaint. This passage, just like last week, is very nuanced and takes careful attention to understand what's going on here. So it begins with Habakkuk calling out to the Lord. By the language that we see Habakkuk using as he calls out to the Lord, we see again that he is a true believer calling out to the true God. We learned that last week, and that's still true of Habakkuk. I want to remind you, like, we don't know how long these chapters are happening. So it could have been years. It could have been Habakkuk's whole life. It could have been a week. We're not given that information. So Habakkuk calls God from everlasting, holy one. So Habakkuk is making the point here that God is holy other. Habakkuk is saying, you, God, are separated from sin. So why are you using the Chaldeans? Remember, Chaldeans and Babylonians are the same people. Why are you using these sinful people to punish your own? And in verse 12, Habakkuk says, we shall not die. So he's trying to convince himself, convince Habakkuk that they won't die, that God really won't use the Chaldeans to conquer God's people, even though that's exactly what God has said he's going to do. We've all done that before. We see things playing out in our lives, and we think, oh, this, this isn't what's happening. This isn't what you're going to do. Um, Habakkuk kind of trying to convince himself this isn't, what's happening isn't real. Um, so Habakkuk is saying, God, your character would prevent you from doing this, would prevent you from working through these evil people. And Habakkuk is acknowledging that God has appointed the Babylonians for judgment, and he's acknowledging that God's people deserve judgment. Because so, remember, last week, he cried out for, to God, asking him to see the people's disobedience. So Habakkuk doesn't think that God's covenant people um, are perfect, but he's saying they don't deserve what the Babylonians deserve. So dun, 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 don't miss that. He's saying we're, we're not perfect, but we're better than them. So Habakkuk is saying we're sinful, but not that sinful. He isn't saying that the Judeans are pristine, but he's saying we're way better than them. So we're going to circle back to this later on. Hold on to that for a minute. When we move into verse 13, Habakkuk is saying again, God, how can you be silent? So that same refrain from last week. Um, but he's asking it more largely now than in the previous chapter. He's saying, how can you be silent and watch the Babylonians of all people destroy your people? How can you work that way? So to Habakkuk, there is a disconnection between his understanding of who God is and how God's acting. Um, He's saying, like, you've said this, but you're doing this. He's saying, if God is sovereign, reigning over all of creation, then why is this happening? And we do this, too. We say, why are there people who don't know God? Why are there people who do evil? Why are we raging against each other? Why do sinful people succeed? So we and Habakkuk ask, doesn't that matter to you? 
When we look in verses 14 and 15, Habakkuk is saying, we are helpless to these people's evilness. We have no power over them. And then in verse 16, um, he's saying that them, the, the Babylonians defeating us, is only going to build their idolatry of their own power. The Babylonians are going to fail to see that you, God, gave them victory. They're going to claim it for their own. That's all that talk about the dragnet and the net. That's saying, um, God, they're going to claim this as their own victory. So Habakkuk is frustrated saying, don't you see, God? It's like he's yelling, your plan is a bad one. This is not what you should do, God. So once my mother-in-law, who is the yaya of all yayas, she's so wonderful, um, once she took my two young sons, reminder my kids are three and six, so at the time they were even younger than that, she took the two of them to an Ole Miss basketball game. And my dutiful oldest child, before they left, was like, yeah, yeah, I don't think this is a very good idea. I think you're going to need more help. And Yaya's like, no, this will be fine. Let's go to the game. So once at the game, uh, little brother is running around and not really interested in listening. And the older child looks at Yaya and said, see, I told you you were going to need more peoples. So, you know, he's saying, I know better than you, Yaya. I could have told you this. So Habakkuk's doing the same thing. It's kind of childlike, doesn't really know what's going on, but acting like he does. She could have maybe used some more peoples. I don't know. Um, so Habakkuk is presuming he knows better than God. He's saying, let me help you here, God. You must be confused. And in verse 17, Habakkuk goes on to say, you're allowing injustice, and this is on you, God. He is being incredibly bold in his words before the Lord. He's saying, you know, why do your people have to suffer? So you may be finding yourself saying, is this allowed? I get what Habakkuk is saying, but um, can he be this straightforward with God? Can we call out to God like this? And we asked some of these same questions last week, but there's such big questions in life. I think it's worth talking about twice in slightly different ways. So just like last week, God tells us to champion justice, but not to sin. And we've got to look here and see that Habakkuk is a picture of constancy in prayer. He is not trying to solve these questions on his own. He is turning to the Lord. He's saying, help me see you. And he's not doing it perfectly, but he's saying, help me see you, God. Because it seems like you're wrong, and I know that's not who you are, so I know then that I must be missing something. He is bringing his heart before the Lord to be changed. So Habakkuk is insatiable here. He is wrestling, longing, crying to the Lord, saying, teach me about you. So I want to pause here and think, have you ever seen teenagers eat? I have worked um, at summer camps before, and I have witnessed this, and they are beasts. Beasts. And it's not just boys. It is also girls. But I want you to think about it. Think about 15-year-olds. Uh, Five years ago, 15-year-olds were 10 years old. And at, five, at 15, five years from now, they will be 20. That is like such overdrive. Going from 10 to 20 just in 10 years. Now I'm like, 10 years is nothing. Like, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, is there that much difference from 10 years ago in my life? Yes, because I'm married and have kids. But, um, you know, when we think about a 15-year-old, you're like, their body is on overdrive. So let's all just pause and have compassion for them for a moment. But um, it makes sense that they are insatiable. They need food. They need energy because so much is happening in their body. They are insatiable and need fuel. 
So that is where Habakkuk is. He is saying, feed me, Lord, I need you, because I'm not getting this on my own. So, yes, God calls us to come to him, be straightforward and direct, um, calling out and acknowledging to him, saying, I don't understand, speak to my heart. Jeremiah 29, 12 says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. So as we move into the beginning of chapter 2, we see Habakkuk doing just that. So I'm just going to read chapter 2, verse 1, short verse. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So, y'all, this is beautiful. I want you to listen, listen, listen right here. Habakkuk is the expectant prophet, the perfect title of that book by John Curran. Um, He's so different than Jonah. He's expecting God to act. He knows that God hears him and is a responder. So he is waiting on Yahweh, the promise keeper. Habakkuk is saying, once God answers me, I'll be able to explain this to myself and to others. I need him to understand what's happening, and I cannot figure this out on my own. So our culture loves efficiency. I love efficiency. I struggle in thinking, what do I accomplish and how fast I accomplish it dictates my worth for the day. Actually, I'm actually, uh, actually, I'm actually. Um, I am speaking as a guest expert on productivity tomorrow night in this art community that I'm in, and it is so comical to me because I'm like, yeah, and I don't need to be an expert on productivity because it just creates sin in my life. I'm like, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do. And that's not what a relationship with God is about. There is so much rest involved as we come to God. So um, efficiency does not bring lasting joy. There's nothing wrong with being efficient, but it can't be our idol and our goal. So it feels so good to cross off that to-do that to do list, but you know, guess what? Tomorrow holds a new to-do list, and next week another one, and the next year, and so on and so on. So Habakkuk is saying the wrestling time is over. Now I will stop and listen. Waiting is worth my time. So Habakkuk is saying I'm going to stand by my watch post and wait. So when we or people that we're in relationship with say things like, God didn't answer my prayer, what we are really saying is that God didn't answer the pr- my prayer in the way that I wanted him to. So God is not merely a prayer hearer. He is an answerer and a responder as well. Not always in the way that we want or the time frame that we want, and not always do we even see it, but we know that that's true of God. He hears his people and he cares. So you know when you... Um, when you're with a child or maybe a coworker or a spouse and they are pestering you, they are asking, you're trying to do something and they are asking you something and it's maybe like an irritating question and they're just kind of buzzing around and you answer with a dismissive like, uh-huh, yeah. Or maybe, maybe in my homes means like absolutely never. But I'm like, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, you're just kind of answering. You're throwing something out because you're like, I just need you to be quiet for a second. You are not really listening. You don't even know what's asking. It's just this bumblebee that you're trying to shoo away for a minute. Um, And you just agree to make the buzzing stop. That is not who God is. He is not simple. He is attentive and loving to his people. So he hears and he responds. But we must be still. So we must understand our position in the universe in relation to God. He is enthroned over all and we are not So we must stand in awe and wonder and be astonished. 
how little we know of God's work. So that's what Habakkuk cries out to the Lord with a second time. Teach me, God. And before we keep going, I want to pause here. So as we've discussed, Habakkuk is calling, 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 waiting to know, wanting to know, can God really work through evilness? We talked about this last week with that word theodicy, which is the question of how can God be good when all this evilness is in the the world? Not the word. (laughs) Um, So, you know, Habakkuk's calling out, calling out, calling out. So John Calvin said, it must be observed that the will of God is the cause of all things that happen in the world, and yet God is not the author of evil. So in other words, God himself cannot do evil and cannot be blamed for evil, even though it's part of his sovereign decree. So God decrees, and people sometimes respond in sin. So God cannot be blamed for their sin, though he's sovereign over all. So this is a place that can take our small groups down a tunnel. We can get lost here. And that's an important question. I don't want to minimize that. But I think there comes to be a time where we have to say, like, it's confusing and and I don't understand it. And I think that's when we have to know one day we won't have questions. One day we'll be eternally with God. So we can ask those. We can wrestle with that in small group. Don't be afraid to bring that up. But I think there, there comes a posture, and this is harder for some people, but of naming this is difficult to understand. We do not have the mind of God. And there's some submission in that. So, in the words of Brian Sorgenfry, we know him, the cross and resurrection of Jesus is proof that God works through evil instruments without endorsing them. So, in evil, man put Jesus on the cross, and in triumph, God raised him from the dead. So, the cross and resurrection of Jesus means that we can take joy in the Lord amidst evil, suffering and destruction. We can take joy in the Lord. So he is abundantly merciful to us, forgiving evil and with us to the end. And evil does not have the last end. And God is communicating that to us here in Habakkuk. He is in all things, over all things, and in charge, even when we don't get it, even when we don't understand. And when that's hard in life, and when we know it to be, we are to sit before the Lord, and we're just like we see Habakkuk here doing at the start of chapter 2. So let's look at how God responds to Habakkuk's calling out and then Habakkuk's waiting. Um, And this point will be a little shorter than our first one. So God's response. God's answer is essentially the same that he gave in chapter 1. The Babylonians are coming to punish the sinful Judah. And God tells Habakkuk to make this known. So let's read just verse, um, chapter 2, verse 4. It says... Behold, his soul is puffed up. So some versions may say, behold, the proud. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So this is God speaking. God speaking to Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. So this is the very heart of the book of Habakkuk. God is saying the proud will not survive, but only the just will live and do so according to their faith. So God is calling attention to the puffed up versus the righteous. So it's very important to note here that God is not saying the proud are the Babylonians and the Judeans are the righteous. Righteous. God is correcting Habakkuk. The righteous one will live by his faith, whether they are Babylonian or Judean. It's about spirituality, not nationality. So it doesn't matter what you look like compared to them. It's about knowing your need for God. 
So William Temple said, the only thing we give to our redemption is our son. We are saved by faith alone, and that faith comes from God. So the New Testament uses this very verse that we just read three times. So it's a famous verse, if you will, and some of us maybe haven't even read it until this week or tonight. So the Apostle Paul quotes this verse twice. In Romans 1.17, Paul uses God's call in Habakkuk to live by faith, and the New Testament as proof for justification by faith alone. So as a reminder, justification is the act of God declaring us righteous instead of the guilt we deserve. Jesus takes our place. So Paul is saying all people will be judged. So he's equating the Babylonians to the Gentiles and the Judeans to the Jews. He's saying only those made righteous by faith will live. And then moving on in Galatians 3.11, Paul uses Habakkuk to make the point that we are made righteous not by following the law, but again by faith through grace. And lastly, the author of Hebrews uses Habakkuk in a different way. In Hebrews 10, verses 37 and 38, the writer is encouraging Christian listeners to be patient in the light of persecution. So he's saying, Habakkuk cried out to God because of injustice and oppression, and God answered Habakkuk saying, wait and be patient. The wicked will be dealt with, and the righteous will live because of their faith in God. So it looks as though evil is succeeding, but it will not last. And that was true when it was spoken to Habakkuk, and that's true to us today. The author of Psalm 73 raises many of the same issues that Habakkuk is. He's saying, you know, if God is sovereign, then why did the wicked succeed? So in this psalm, the psalmist goes to the temple where all the cares of the world fall away. So I'm going to read from Psalm 73 verses 16 through 18. It says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. So the answer to the problem is provided here. Their end. The wicked appear to prosper now, but here in Habakkuk 2.4, God tells us what ultimately happens to them. They fade away. So what do we hold on to as faithful believers? Psalm 73.26 tells us, My flesh and may, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So in Habakkuk 2.5, the book transitions. And it transitions to God calling out specific wicked behaviors, which are called woes. So as we head into this later half of Habakkuk, latter half, I always get thrown off in that. You know when you're reading and they're like, the former and the latter, and I'm like, wait, wait, um, I don't know why that's hard for me. Anyway, I'm going to be fancy and say, as we head into the latter half of Habakkuk 2, we see God naming these five woes to the wicked. In response to Habakkuk's call against the wicked, God is saying, they will be judged, Habakkuk, be patient. God is saying, I am working even if it's not how you think I should, and justice will not be tolerated. It will not be ignored. All unrighteous, whether Judean or Babylonian, will be judged. So while we're going to barely, barely just touch on these five woes, they could be a whole lesson in and of themselves. We are to come before the Lord and listen um, at him calling out these woes. They are an invitation. 
They are an invitation to repentance, to his love and forgiveness that's lavished onto us. I feel like even as I was preparing this, I was like, oh, the five woes, I don't want to study that. I don't want to teach on that. And it, it convicted me because it realized like, yeah, I don't want to think about my son. I don't want to call other people to think about our son. It's much easier to talk about God's love, but both are so important. And the beautiful thing is that when we talk about our sin and when we are invited to repentance, that connects us to God's love. So we don't have to shrink away from listening to his call for justice and fear. We can do so confidently knowing that God longs to forgive us, no matter how big your past or your present are. So you know how it can be pretty scary sometimes to start a house project or to buy a house. Um, you know, it's like if you're like, I'm going to clean out my garage. I'll just do it on a Saturday morning. No big deal. Or we are just going to get some new countertops. Like we are not doing a kitchen renovation. We're just going to like toss these countertops out, toss some new ones on. It's not going to be a big deal. At all. Or like I'm going to clean out this front closet. Just this one. You know, I can do that quick. Tuesday night, we'll get this done. Well, we all know that once the project begins, all of a sudden there's an electrical issue. All of a sudden you have found black mold. All of a sudden when they took the countertop out, it hit off the top of the cabinet and now you're needing all new cabinets. Or you start one closet and you're like, you know, actually all the closets are just as bad as this. You know, you start a project and it just often gets compounded. You found a leak. Any number of things. You can't just go into Home Depot once. We all know it's like four more trips, one of them being at like 9.58 p.m. So to start a project is to open Pandora's box. And we can view repentance like this. Um, if I admit how bad I am, the pit is endless. I'll never get out. So some of us maybe just sit in shame or some of us sit in ignoring and saying, I'm just not going to look at that. But that's, when, that's a view of us looking at ourselves to be our Savior. Repentance leads us to God's love, not ourselves, not a bottomless pit of darkness, but eternal life with him. It, he takes that bottomless pit and he washes it away. And it ends that compounding. So I want us to hold on to that as we step in just really quickly into these five woes. And the study notes of the Reformation Bible were incredibly helpful to me as I study those five woes. Um, so just know that that's where I got a lot of this information. So let's look at it. And this is going to be quick. The first woe is in verses 6 through 8. And it calls out saying, those who plunder others will themselves be plundered. So the unjust will be punished. So this points to, I can't say this word, and I said I was going to practice it between this morning and now, but I even like wrote it out, retributive, retributive, retributive irony. If I just say it quick and confidently, y'all are like, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think when I give you the, when I, when I explain what it is, it clicks. So the greatest example of this kind of irony is that Satan erected a cross for Jesus, yet Satan was defeated by it. So same with that story in Esther where we see um, Haman building these gallows and he's the one that's, that's killed there. So um, those who plunder will be plundered. The second woe in verses 9 through 11 says, um, well, it's condemning those who seek security and economic gain at the expense of others. 
So it, um, to explain this, it uses an architectural metaphor here. So it's saying, you know, when we commit ourselves to something other than the Lord, when we build our houses on a false foundation, it destroys us. Specifically, verse 11 says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So this is saying the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will reap what they have sown. The false houses they have built will cry out against them. So we see Jesus quote this verse over in Luke 19. So as Jesus is making his triumphal, triumphant um, entry into Jerusalem, he quotes Habakkuk 2.11. He says, well, the story says this, as he was drawing near, as Jesus was drawing near, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the adoration given to Jesus is so worthy and true that, if need be, even the rocks of the walls of Jerusalem would cry out praise. So as Jesus uses this verse from Habakkuk, he is teaching the opposite of Habakkuk 2.11. So in Habakkuk, the stones cry out against um, unrighteous people. And in Luke, the stones cry out because the king has come. So he's announcing redemption for the unrighteous. So I love this connection. Anytime we get such a clear, easy picture of the big picture of the Bible is beautiful. And I love knowing that Jesus quoted this. So moving into the third woe, verses 12 through 14. And it pronounced judgment on the ruthless but futile efforts of the tyrant to perpetuate his fame. So what the unrighteous pursue is empty. What the tyrant pursues is empty. If you're pursuing anything other than the Lord, it is empty. Moving into the fourth woe, verses 15 through 17. It pronounces judgment on Babylon's sadistic and humiliating treatment of others saying, if you drink wickedness, you will drink God's wrath. We cannot be wicked. God sees and says, that is not the way that I call you to. So the fifth and last woe, which is in verses 18 through 20, or excuse me, 18 through 19, denounces idolatry. It says idolatry is foolish and illogical and irrational. God makes clear his demands. He says, follow me and only me, because I know what you need and I know that you need me. These things that you were worshiping will not fulfill. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So the only place of true trust is Jesus. He is the only safe place. He is the only dependable place, the only solid place. So chapter 2 closes in verse 20, and it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So this is a sharp contrast being drawn. The silent idols of verse 19 and the living God in verse 20 is saying, hush, be silent. God is God. So after all is said and done and after all the questions have been asked, there comes a point where we must acknowledge God is God and we are not. So we're going to finish here. Um, in Psalm 46, the psalmist encourages God's people not to fear. So verses 8 through 11 say thus, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. 
He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So be still. God knew Habakkuk's heart and God knows our hearts. God knows how we struggle and we question his sovereignty and providence um, and how we seek to understand his ways and how difficult they are, that is. He knows our frame. He knows that we are merely dust. But God is in control. He is working and he calls us to be still. So one day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory and we can have hope in that. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about next week. The book of Habakkuk is so beautiful because we get to see such a transformation in him. You know, it's like Jonah, it's like such a letdown at the end as you're like, well, we don't even know what's going to happen to him. It's really beautiful, which God uses that as purpose, as perfect in his word as it is. But a delightful thing about Habakkuk is we see some powerful change in his life, and that's what we're going to see. So while these first two chapters of Habakkuk speak about similar topics, chapter three is going to be vastly different than first two. So one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. So we'll end there. Before we head to small groups, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you that you hear us, that you are not just a hearer but a responder. Father, we ask that you would have us um, stand in faith, that we would turn to you. And when we struggle to turn to you, Father, that your spirit would whisper to us and draw us to you. We thank you that you love us. In your name we pray. Amen.